Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Hello and welcome to Start Your Week. I'm Ros Taylor. After a looming sense of dread over this strange summer, drought, heat waves, Tory psychodrama, August is finally over, the kids are back at school, and with me to talk about a very big week in Britain is Arthur Snell. Hello, Arthur. Morning, Roz. So, Liz Truss, it looks like, as far as we can tell, Rishi Sunak more or less conceded defeat last night, so she will almost certainly be announced as the new leader of the Tory party and the new PM today. They say that Liz Truss is facing the biggest in-tray ever. That seems a bit of an understatement, doesn't it, Arthur? Setting aside what any of us think of Liz Truss, if you tried to think of the worst possible time to become prime minister, you've got a war raging, your party is very unpopular, you've got a a possibly almost once in a century economic crisis, and you've only got a couple of years until the next election. I I think it's, it's a pretty, pretty tough gig. She did an interview with Laura Kunzberg for a new BBC Sunday show yesterday, which caused some controversy, albeit perhaps slightly whipped up. What did we learn about trust in that? Well, I think the sort of the key line which has been clipped and quoted is where she says, to look at everything through the lens of redistribution, I believe is wrong. And this is around the question of this terrible cost of living crisis, which is still, it's an oncoming tsunami, you know, the wave has yet to hit the beach. And it seemed to be that that she's sort of upending a kind of consensus that has possibly existed since the new Labour era, that ultimately we can argue about the size of the tax take and, and, and the size of the state, but we do believe that the state has a role to redistribute wealth from the richest to the poorest. And Truss is perhaps saying the quiet part out loud. She's actually saying, well, no, me and, and the Tories around me don't think that. You know, we, we have a different view. And she talks about how uh, what she wants to do is grow the economy. Now, if we're going to get into the technical aspects of her argument, it seems highly flawed, because if you look at countries whose economies have grown, countries like ours, they tend to be countries that are quite strongly redistributive. But it seems to be there's this fundamental issue where she basically thinks that taking wealth and income from the wealthy to help the poorest is not an objective that she agrees with. It is extraordinary in the context of 12 years of austerity to say that the state, British state is too redistributive, it, it, it almost implies that she's after a completely different, a completely different model. I mean, more, much more like America, much more like the Far East, perhaps, much less like Europe. I think, I think that's right in terms of what she dreams about and the, the people around her and the sort of think tank bubble that, that, you know, probably forms a lot of her advisors. The difficulty is, of course, that certainly there is no way that Britain's economy can become like a Far Eastern economy, simply because we do not have any type of political landscape that, that would support that. You know, we're not going to become a sweatshop economy. We've, we finished doing that in the early 20th century, and we're not going back there. So that, that's just is ridiculous. 
And the American model is is pretty far off because although that seems a bit more accessible, it does, of course, rely on a flow of cheap immigrant labor and also on having a vast country with huge natural resources, which makes it very easy to say, well, here's 100 acres, which we're going to you know, bulldoze and turn into a big new gigafactory, which again, you can't really do that in, in the southeast of England. So I, I just think that, that she and her people are living in a sort of fantasy land and, and they're going to have a very hard landing when they see the realities, you know, when the treasury team, the people go on about treasury orthodoxy, uh, but when that team comes to brief her on just how difficult the economic picture is, I, I just can't imagine that these slightly crazy ideologies are going to persist. So the question we're all asking is how she's going to cut taxes as she has promised and sort out the energy crisis. Well, I mean, she can't long term sort out the energy crisis. That is the work of decades, but to at least spare people from freezing to death this winter. And that's going to require a huge amount of borrowing, isn't it? It is. And one of the odd oddities of, of this, you know, campaign for both from her and Sunak has been that her in particular has been this strange reluctance to sort of address the burning political question of our time. You'd think if you want to be prime minister, the first thing you're going to do is show that you've got a sort of grip on the crisis. Here's my 10 point plan. I'm going to hit the ground running. Instead, she was just going to hit the ground, as she said, crash. So she says she's going to cut taxes, which will help, uh, you know, the wealthy middle classes. But she hasn't yet said anything serious about what she's going to do with the energy crisis. Now, I think a lot of people expect that she's going to announce basically a version of Labour's policy. And she's going to probably have to announce it in the next, you know, 24, 48, 36 hours. Who knows? So that's one possibility that she just announces the thing that she could easily have said she would have done all along. But it's hard to understand why she hasn't done that. I think the other problem that they're grappling with is something that, you know, when we go to the sort of flashback to the 1970s that we sometimes feel we're in, is the spectre of a run on the pound, which is one of those things that I think, Ros, you and I are, 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 although we're very old, we're not old enough to really remember those those times. But, um, you know, the, in the 1970s, you'd have moments when the pound sterling as an international currency looked like a pretty bad bet. And if you look at the performance of the pound since Brexit, it's dropped and dropped and dropped. But we've still, as a country, been able to borrow money relatively easily. But that can change quite quickly. And that's one of the ways in which countries' economies sort of fall from troubled into really collapsing. And I think that must be one of the the real fears because, you know, we've been able to borrow in a slightly uh, sort of consequence-free environment, but that could turn into a high-consequence environment. Well, as I have discovered, Liz Truss is almost exactly the same age as us, Arthur. So perhaps so she, she doesn't, doesn't remember, remember it either. Very well either, and that's part of the problem. Some people say that she's found her feet a bit during the campaign, become somewhat less wooden. She's got a bit more of a connection with people, the Tory party at least. I don't see it myself. Do you get the sense that she's going to win over the country in her first speech to them tomorrow? Well, whether she'll win them over, I think even Liz Truss in a terrible economic climate will get that bounce. And I think for those of us who are not uh, particularly keen to see her last for years as prime minister, there'll be some nervous months where we think, oh, actually, is she going to get away with this? You know, a lot of the time she just comes across as sort of clueless and incompetent, but she may be able to kind of flip that slightly and come across as sort of genuine and unpolished. And, and uh, you know, she clearly isn't from a 
highly, highly privileged background. She's not as ordinary as she wants us to believe. Her parents are senior academics. She obviously had a comfortable middle-class childhood. But, but you know, she, she's not an old Etonian. That's fairly unusual in our prime ministers. Um, so <laughs> so I, I think that there's a side to her that, that may appeal in the early days. And I'm sure the right-wing media w- will really exert every sinew to do long features about her normal family and, and how she lives a sort of uh, a life that we can all identify with. And, and that, I reckon, will, will give her a small bump in, in the next few weeks. We've got a good idea of who her cabinet is going to be, Kwasi Kwarteng for her chancellor, Therese Coffey apparently for her deputy prime minister. What do you think of them? Well, it's it's a fairly uncompromising lineup of the people who have shouted loudest for her. And of course, sort of built into that is a kind of continuity Johnsonism. So obviously, Rishi Sunak isn't there, although arguably it would be rather clever for her to appoint him to a senior role. One of the really troubling ones is Suella Braverman as Home Secretary. You know, if you thought Pretty Patel was this kind of strangely nasty and and sort of small-minded Home Secretary, I think Suella Braverman's going to show just how deep you can plumb those depths. Jacob Rees-Mogg as Business Secretary. Now, of course, he, in his own mindset, is is a highly successful financier and businessman. I think in the real world, he got lucky by marrying a very rich woman. And I doubt Jacob Rees-Mogg knows anything about how normal businesses are able to function, and particularly given that most exporters in this country are still grappling with the uh, effects of the terrible Brexit deal, which, of course, he thinks is perfect. You know, a couple of other, it looks as though that uh, Nadine Doris will continue in Culture Secretary, which, of course, will reflect the amazing job she's done there. And uh, <laughs> there may be uh, space for Tom Tugendhat. Uh, there, were, there was hopes that he might get all the way to Foreign Secretary. And again, that would, that would have shown Liz Truss able to make an appointment outside her sort of immediate ideological bubble. But it looks more likely that Tugendhat's going to have a sort of junior but important role as a security minister, which, you know, reflecting his military background, wouldn't be a bad appointment. So who is tipped for your old department, Arthur? The FCDO. Well, Foreign Office is going to be James Cleverly. And, uh, you know, we've all made the joke about his name before. And uh, somehow, I, I, I can't even be, I can't bring myself to do it. James Cleverly is, uh, let's, if we sort of look back on his career, he's this kind of lightweight, cheeky chappy who emerged as part of Boris Johnson's team when he was London mayor. And his one sort of Marvel superpower is to have been slavishly loyal to Boris Johnson, even when Boris Johnson was never loyal to himself. And he's got the reward by becoming um, Foreign Secretary, you know, our chief representative on the international stage. Now, I've said it before in other contexts that we've got, Britain has reached that stage on the sort of international uh, arena, where we're just the guy who's going through a midlife crisis, maybe we're the guy who's who has lo- hasn't sort of managed to keep control of his drinking. We're, we're, we're the, 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 the guy who kind of causes his old friends a bit of embarrassment and they kind of look away, they stare at their feet as he says some other stupid thing. And there's a, everyone is just hoping that they'll get help. But no one's quite sure how to get them that help. And I think that's where Britain is at the moment. And I think James Cleverly will be seen as sort of uh, epitomizing that era of British foreign policy. One of the things that we don't see with Liz Truss is any real commitment to environmentalism. 
to green policies. And perhaps in response to that, XR is ramping up their campaigns. Tell us what they're doing in the next week, Arthur, and what they've done this weekend. Yeah, so uh, as as the uh, raging headlines in The Sun described it, woke vegan activists at XR uh, stopped milk deliveries reaching various supermarkets over the weekend. And so there would be em- empty shelves, although I think the average British shopper is uh, pretty used to empty shelves anyway. Um, but uh, the sort of the plan for next week is, is supposedly to occupy Hyde Park, which, as as we all know, is a huge place where if you step out of line, the parks police are on you in, in moments. So that could be quite a combustible moment. There's also more industrial action this week, of course, with criminal barristers going on indefinite strike from today and next week railway workers again and other industrial action. Let's move to one of the causes of the energy crisis, the biggest cause, Russia. It's keeping the Nord Stream pipeline shut, isn't it? It closed it briefly last week and then it decided to keep it shut. Germany has been filling its reserves and they seem pretty high, but will they be enough for the winter? Yeah, it's a very interesting sort of unfolding situation. So as everybody now knows, uh, Germany in the past was extremely reliant on on the, this pipeline called Nord Stream, which went straight from Russia to Germany across the sea, bypassing Poland and other countries. The Russians have in recent weeks come up with very spurious sort of maintenance problems. And they sort of say, oh, terribly sorry, you know, our, our pipeline doesn't work anymore and, and you can't have our gas. But at the same time, the Germans are doing that thing, which of course they are famous for, which is showing ruthless efficiency in engineering uh, science. Um, So the Germans have huge gas storage facilities, and they have been filling them up, literally, you imagine a sort of vast tank being filled up with gas from other places. And in fact, Germany had aimed to get get them uh, 85% full by October, and they've already done it. And and what's really interesting about this is that only 10% of that gas had come from Russia, whereas last year it was more than half. So what the Germans have, have done is shown the world once again that you know when uh, the proverbial hits the fan, they can do other things. They can bring to bear what is one of the world's greatest sort of industrial powers, and they can make change. But as you say, we don't know if it's going to be enough. One of the things that is very different about this debate in continental Europe, particularly Germany, but in other countries as well, is politicians being able to treat their publics as grown-ups, which is something that, of course, hasn't happened for years in this country. And so there is a public and open and active debate in Germany about how to conserve energy over the winter. And that involves questions like, do we switch off streetlights in certain places? How do we you know, shut down lights in government buildings overnight? And all these sorts of marginal gains that can be made that would obviously have an impact at the national level. Meanwhile, you've got Liz Truss who, you know, will say yes to anything that she thinks might win her votes. She thinks we might no longer need a speed limit on the roads. And one of the things she's also said is that there won't be any rationing of energy. Well, that's fine until we find that we're having blackouts later in the winter. And Ukraine has been making a push around Kherson in the south, hasn't it? With some success as far as I can see, is that correct? I think that is correct. Yeah, it, this is the the bit of South Ukraine, which the Russians actually were able to take right at the beginning of the war, and arguably the one sort of 
success story of that early part of, of Russia's war. And so this is the sort of Ukrainian counterattack. And obviously, what the Ukrainians have got now is one is better weapons from NATO countries, notably America, so-called HIMARS rockets, which allow them to take out the Russian artillery. And it's artillery is what Russia has more than anything else of. They've done that. And then they have been fighting very, very hard. There's been very high casualties. And they have regained certain important territories around the Kherson area. And there are photos on Twitter of, of the, the, the uh, gold and blue flag being hoisted over towns that have been liberated. However, it is by no means uh, you know, over. There is, there is uh, evidence of the Russians being able to hold on. And I think perhaps one of the ways in which you can sort of assess the state of that conflict is what's happening at the nuclear plant in Zaporizhia, which is in that region. As everyone will be well aware, it's the largest nuclear power plant in Europe. And basically, the Russians are playing a kind of Russian roulette, if I can call it that, with the power plant itself, occasionally disconnecting it from the grid, which then risks the whole thing boiling over. And I don't believe that the Russians are stupid enough to want uh, to create a, you know, a disaster which would dwarf the Chernobyl uh, disaster. But the Russians are willing to go right to the edge and terrify the IAEA, the UN Nuclear, Wep uh, Nuclear Power Inspectorate, and of course, you know, the, the, the rest of the international community. So it seems to me the fact the Russians are playing that game suggests that they're doing rather badly in the conventional battlefield. Well, finally, my kids are back at school today after seven weeks of family time. Um, mm -hmm. <laughs> I believe yours are too. Lucky you. Yes. <laughs> what will you not miss about the last few weeks? <laughs> well, I, I will not miss the constant feeling of guilt at the failure to create enough opportunities for them not to be staring at the flickering screen. Now, of course, what you know, there's there's all kinds of perfectly valid, well-researched sort of scientific things telling us that actually kids staring at flickering screens isn't very bad for them and, you know, and, and it's not going to sort of turn them into awful couch potatoes. But there's still a part of you that as a parent, when it's the holidays and it's sort of mid-morning and your child hasn't moved from staring at an iPad that you think, I'm such a shit parent. Yeah, no, it makes, uh, you, you see it as well. It's no matter how many surveys you see, you see it making them inert, lazy, big, bad tempered yeah. and yeah. <laughs> slobbish. And uh, it's, yeah. yes, no, I will not miss the, the and then that generally means that I have to read a story uh, or I have to read another chapter right. of a book. Yeah, because so, then it's your problem then it's to my fix problem. that, isn't it? Yes, yeah. and yeah. Uh, distracting <laughs> me from work all, all the time, yes. And as you say, the constant feeling of guilt that despite lining up three weeks of summer camps, and one and a half weeks of summer holiday, which is a hell of a lot more than I ever had when I was that age, that I'm still it's not never enough. enough. No. Nope. Thanks for joining us, Arthur. Thanks, it's been a pleasure. Thanks for listening to The Bunker and don't forget you can back us on Patreon. Just search Patreon Bunker Podcast and you'll be helping us make sense of these crazy times. I'm Ross Taylor. See you next time. Start Your Week from the Bunker was written and presented by Ros Taylor with Arthur Snell. The producers were Jacob Archbold, Yelena Sofronievich and Alex Reese, with assistant production from Kasia Tomashevich. The lead producer was Jacob Jarvis, and the audio producer was me, Jade Bailey. Group editor Andrew Harrison, theme tune by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker is a Podmasters production.